0: And welcome to the TSDCA podcast, where we bring you interviews, conversations, and explorations of the world of theatrical sound design. Today on the show, we have Chris Ashworth and Sam Kuznets of Figure 53, the makers of QLab. We hope you enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Chris, Sam, welcome to the podcast if you wouldn't mind both introducing yourselves. My name is Sam Kuznets. I've been
1: working for Figure 53 now for just over seven years, and my role has varied. I started extremely part-time while I was mostly working as an assistant and associate designer off-Broadway and doing customer support for QLab. So answering emails when people write it and say, my God, I don't know how I did this, but I've started only hearing all my sound out of one speaker. What am I doing? I would help the person figure out what it was that they did and how to correct it, or what it was that QLab had done wrong. And then I spoke to the developers about how we could correct it. And then over time, my role sort of evolved to incorporate a little bit more sort of higher level thinking about support. And then when we started developing QLab 4, we realized that both our process and our product had become sufficiently complex, that it required a little bit more formalized management structure. And rather than taking one of the developer's Off of the full-time task of writing code, I took the role of product manager or project manager. We often abbreviate it PM, but we don't often talk about what the P or M stands for. But my job is to help the developers coordinate their efforts, to help make sure that things that we've identified as being very important don't ever fall off the radar, and also to help figure out when things first come up on the radar, whether or not they are important and should be focused upon. And do sort of like administrative tasks and things like that so that Chris and the other developers can just as much as possible focus on writing code and getting new releases of QLab out into the world rather than focusing on management tasks or organizational tasks. And Sam does a lot of teaching as well. Oh yeah that's true that's true I teach the Q classes which are sort of on-demand classes in which Well, in the days before COVID, I would go places and teach classes usually a couple of days long. Now I'm doing them online and in the future, who knows how they'll happen. The other big thing that I do for QLab is I write the manual, which is a task that I've grown to actually deeply love. It's your turn, Chris.
2: Well, hi, I'm Chris Ashworth and delighted to be talking to you today. I started the company. I started working on QLab almost 16 years ago now, I think, uh, and then started the company after that. But yeah, I started the company and I'm primarily a developer within the company. As Sam just described, he wears many hats and I also wear many hats. It's a small company, so each person tends to do a lot of different things. But I primarily write software and take responsibility for decisions, (laughs) which have to have somebody decide them. So I get to do that, which is sometimes fun and sometimes scary. And yeah, that's me.
0: Uh, Chris, would you mind talking a little bit about how QLab came to be?
2: You know, I once heard Penn and Teller who were asked where they started. I think it was Penn who said something like, this story has been told so many times, I'm not sure there's that much truth left in it, which is a concept that I really love. The idea that when something happens the first time, it's the truest it's ever gonna be. And then as it's told, it kind of turns into its own separate thing and evolves and grows and changes. But I will tell you the story and hopefully I can get it more or less right. I was in grad school. I had just come out of an apprentice program at Actors Theatre of Louisville. My theatrical background is primarily as an actor, and I had been in the apprentice program at ATL in Louisville and enjoyed it a lot, but my other nerdy interest is computers. And so I went to grad school for computer science at UNC Chapel Hill, and I had some friends from the apprentice program who had gone to Asheville to start a little theater company. And I was at school not necessarily enjoying it that much. It was a bit of a slog for me. I liked building stuff, but I wasn't good at being an academic. And the friends had emailed me at one point towards the end of one of the semesters and said, We're doing a show next January. So I think this was in well, it was in late October. It was October twenty fifth. I hunted down the header file at one point to figure out when I'd started working on this thing. And it was October twenty fifth, maybe a few days before then they had emailed me and said, Do you know of any program that can play back sound for our show. We need something a little more sophisticated than some CD players. And at the time, I thought, well, I thought it was going to be one of those classic things, like I'll do your Google search for you and send you the link to something. And found that, oh, and one important detail was they only had a Mac, and they didn't have much money, so they couldn't buy another computer. So at the time, there wasn't a lot of options, especially for Apple computers so because i wasn't super happy with what i was doing for homework and research and wanted to work on something that actually felt good to work on it turned into a project a nights and weekends kind of project and in those early days me and some other friends who had sort of put our heads together to just i don't know try to whip something out in a few weeks because this was you know maybe two months until they needed it none of us had ever written a mac app before none of us had ever written a full piece of software before It was starting from scratch, you know, learning what core audio was and how to build a piece of software that someone would really use in a real setting. And it was a wild few weeks, quite a sprint. I think I managed to launch that first early, early version. We went through trying to figure out what to name it. There were a lot of silly names. And I opened that first version uh, sometime recently, and it's kind of delightful to see how many ideas kind of existed still in the current version of the program from back then so we did this crazy sprint and made a program that they used i think it was in january and they ran the show on it and it had fading and it had more than one go button i think at the time and it did the thing and so that was that and i had to return to my research and schoolwork and such and that little group of folks kind of disbanded after that initial sprint later i think it was i don't know maybe that summer I was still not enjoying myself that much. And I was like, I really had fun on that thing. That was really fun to work on. And I really, it felt good. And it was an area I was interested in and had a lot of love for. So I just picked it back up again and just started building and building and building and building and writing and writing and writing. And at some point got to the point where it felt like it was kind of sort of maybe ready for someone to say, is it even worth working on this anymore? Because if not, this is taking a lot of time, and I'm having a good time, but if no one's going to use it, then I should probably set it down. So I found a mailing list, the Theatrical Sound Designer mailing list, which I think it's on a different platform now, but it still exists. And this was a great gift to have this mailing list of professional sound designers and I just sent an email and I said, Here's this thing I've been working on. It's not done. It's not for sale. I'm not a sound professional. This is not my back I mean, I'm I have a background in theater, but not in sound. So is this something that anyone does anyone have any interest? And very quickly got quite a few emails back of people with both helpful feedback about what they'd like to see different, but also encouragement about them wanting to see someone working on this. And It was super exciting, it was really, really exciting to finally close that loop with someone and have someone care about it, this thing I'd been grinding away on for so long. So that was kind of the spark, I think, that really made sure that it kept going, so from there on I was finishing school and then I got a day job and I was doing all those things, but every other spare hour was spent trying to build this thing and eventually I gave it away for free for a while and then the people who were using it were smart enough to know that that wasn't gonna last forever, so they said you really should be selling this so you can keep working on it. Which was an exciting moment. So then one thing led to another, and now it's a job. Now it's what I've been doing for the last 16 or more years of my life. Keep doing it as long as I can. Do
1: you want to talk about the broom closet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, Right. This is like, for me, the broom closet is kind of like what we would in script analysis refer to as the inciting incident. (laughs) Yeah, right.
2: Okay. So going back to this group of friends who had met in the apprentice company in Louisville and who had started a small theater company in North Carolina. So rewind the tape. And before they reached out to ask you about a program for Running Sound, that the summer before that, they had asked me to come be their operator at the Edinburgh Fringe. They made a little show. There's three of them. And they asked me to join them. And the four of us flew over and they were going to perform their show. And I was going to be their stage manager and their sound and light operator all in one. And for anyone who's been to the fringe, you know that they convert any space that's available into a venue. And so we had it was a cute little dance club, a cute little nightclub, not very big. And the tech booth was the coat closet. When you walked in the front door, there was like a coat closet immediately to your right. And that's where I was to sit. And so I had a laptop with iTunes on a music stand, I had a tiny little mixer, and there were some light switches on the wall behind me, and I had a script. It's really fun to like try to demonstrate this physically because it involves a lot of convoluted like reaching around behind you while you're trying to balance a script while you're pressing the button on iTunes. So I was running that show that involves needing more hands than I had and hitting the light switch with my foot at just the right time kind of thing. And it was real motivating to be in that situation and think, like, actually pressing the buttons shouldn't be this hard, you know. Once we know what it should be, it should just be click and just let the computer do it. And I'd had a similar experience at the Humana Festival, actually, at ATL, where we had built a show that needed some custom video projection stuff that had been built in Pure Data, actually. There's a guy who constructed a custom Pure Data program to do projection on one of the Humana shows. And I think I can say, without bragging too much, that it was good that they had me to operate it (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because it was not the most friendly thing in the world and it involved thinking very carefully and focusing very hard to make sure that just that piece of that show operated in the way it was intended to operate every night.
1: I had a very similar experience (laughs) with a show in college, which was, it was not a custom made piece of software, but it was three mini disc players feeding a sound console that had been custom manufactured for that theater. And again, it was the same thing. Like it was remarkably easy to do something entirely incorrectly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh man. Oh, oh. I'm just getting like little shivers remembering like just the intensity of the focus needed to... (laughs) to follow along and press the right buttons in the right order at the right time. And we we had a, that one had, really did have a foot switch. So I, I didn't, like I had both hands on different keyboards and I had to have a foot switch because I couldn't do it fast enough with all my hands. It was really something.
1: So I came of age in our industry at sort of an interesting moment in history. I was born in 1980, which means that though I didn't know it, I'm like the same age as the Walkman. So the idea, at least the way I envision the history of theatrical sound, is like, in the beginning, sound could only be live. If you wanted music, you needed a musician. If you wanted singing, you needed a singer. And then several thousand years passed, and after that came pre-recorded sound that had essentially zero precision to it. And it's really only been just before, but basically during my lifetime, that the notion of pre-recorded sound played back with great precision has even been conceivable. So that's sort of the way I, like, view the arc of history of theatrical sound. And I got my start using cassettes and quarter-inch open reel tape players, in which editing involved slicing tape up with razor blades and slicing your fingers up with razor blades. Not not on purpose, just it always happened. And getting tape, like, adhesive tape everywhere. And I feel frustration with folks who think about that nostalgically as something that we're missing these days. I mean, I have no problem with nostalgia and I have no problem with enjoying an old process. And certainly I understand the pride that comes with being very good at something that's very difficult, which is certainly what I felt when I successfully edited multiple live sound sources together into a single stereo playback cassette to be used in the theater. I felt pride at being good at that. But the truth is that today I actually view the fact that I don't have to deeply concerned myself with whether or not my tools will fundamentally work as a major asset And it allows me to view what I'm doing, not as a question of will or will this not happen, but is or is this not what I want it to sound like? And therefore, my energy can be spent on my intention. My energy can be spent on understanding the script, understanding the director's hopes, understanding the other designers' plays and how they're operating, and then making sure that my work fits with their work and supports their work and supports the story and communicates to the audience, instead of spending all that energy just wondering whether the three pieces of string and the copper wire are correctly tied together in the desperate hope that the doorbell might ring. I don't see that as a loss. I see that as a change. And it means that more of my energy can go towards the thing that the audience hears.
0: For me coming up, I was working in community theaters where I would need to make one piece of gear connect to another, and the theater had no money, but it had a soldering iron and a bunch of old broken cables sitting in the corner. So my solution would be to cut the ends off the cables I needed, and solder them together, and that's how we'd solve the problem. And it's an experience that taught me how to troubleshoot with what was available. And I feel like something I see frequently now is people look down at an inventory and have all the parts they need to make a solution but it's not the way they were taught. And they say, well, I guess we can't do it. I got to say, I think you're absolutely
1: right. And I think that what's going on here, what you've just described is the revelation of the slowness of the teaching process to adapt. The individual who looks down at the inventory and says, well, this doesn't include the way I was taught and therefore I don't know how to solve this. The problem is not that this person is insufficiently creative or has not been sufficiently given restrictive environments from which they need to emerge victorious. I think the problem is that those of us who are now old enough to be in teaching positions are not always noticing that We can't rely upon the basic limitations of our environment to be naturally occurring teaching forces. And instead, we need to proactively teach troubleshooting in a way that we didn't used to. We need to proactively teach a multiplicity of approaches to solving a problem in a way that we didn't used to have to, because we didn't used to have a multiplicity of problems available. We just had one problem, which was that nothing fucking ever worked. And, you know, people say, oh, kids these days don't know how to troubleshoot. And I say, yeah fellow old person, whose fault is that? It's our fault. We had to learn to troubleshoot before anything could happen. So now it's on us to teach folks to learn to troubleshoot before something goes wrong, because something so often doesn't go wrong on its own. So that teaching opportunity isn't just going to appear like magic.
2: I love everything you both have said, and I don't speak as a designer. So I'm curious what you think about this I feel like there's one other angle on this, which is less about whether the tools are of quality and work reliably, and more about how certain things are baked into the design of tools. And, and this is why it's exciting to me to have diversity of tools and why I love seeing other software out there that's used in certain cases where QLab isn't the right fit or inevitably a tool will have a worldview baked into it and that will guide and form the things it makes. And. That therefore it's not bad to have good tools, but it's also good to have lots of different kinds of tools or different starting positions of, you know, when you're staring at a script or when you're starting in an empty room to devise a piece, making the conscious choice to say, I'm picking up this tool to craft what I'm going to do here, or I'm picking up this other tool because I have a specific artistic reason to do it, or I'm just doing Foley because that sounds unique and special in a way that is not reproduced with software X or Y. I mean, does that feel like it's also part of it? I I love the sound of that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, 100%. And this is totally a tangent, but I feel like every year when Apple announces a new operating system, it's always moving towards a lowest common denominator of user. Advanced features get hidden or disappear, and it feels like it's detrimental to users' understanding of how to interact with computers. I think
1: Apple has a pretty strong view of Well, you know, I'm going to say this, I think actually Apple and Microsoft have this in common, right? So they're the two major operating system manufacturers, macOS, iOS, and Windows, I think together comprise probably most of the computing devices that the average human interacts with. And then after that comes Android is my guess. And distantly after that comes Linux. But I think that Apple and Microsoft both sort of envision a world in which the idea of being an expert at using a computer is irrelevant and... Instead, the question is, are you an expert at whatever area it is that you're using the computer for? I first started using a Mac in about 1990, maybe 89, 90, 91, somewhere in there, and I was a kid. And it was obvious to me even at that time that being an expert at using the computer was a prerequisite for getting anything done with the computer. And I think that I agree that there's a sense of dumbing down that can be frustrating, especially if you're already expert, you look at the next revision of Windows or the next revision of macOS and say, why are you taking away flexibility? I've spent time learning how to do this. I've spent time getting good at this. Why are you taking away my tools? And I think for me anyway, the answer that I try to remember is for every person like me, there are two or five or 10 or 100 people for whom basic computer literacy is a barrier to achieving whatever they really want to get done, whether that's writing or editing a piece of music or a piece of cinema or anything. The computer, I think in Apple's mind, in Microsoft's mind, should disappear and the person should be able to spend all of their expertise and all of their energy on the task at hand. And I don't know if that's right or wrong or good or bad, but I think it's a valid perspective. And I think the hard part is, well, all right, how can we continue to develop the computer or how can figure 53 continue to develop QLab in such a way that the floor for accessibility continues to drop lower and lower so that anyone can pick it up and get done what they need to get done. But the ceiling for expertise continues to stay high or even go higher so that folks who really wish to spend time and energy digging in, learning the tool and crafting their expertise can reap the benefits of that energy that they spend. And that's the hard part about software for me.
2: And we spend a not small amount of time having discussions about where to draw that line in QLab all the time. There's this constant question of, should this be made more accessible? baked in? Is it actually a good thing that it's the main way to do this is through scripting? How do we arrange the bits and pieces of how this program works to make the ceiling of expertise, not the difficulty, but the potential of it as high as we can make it while still maintaining the accessibility as as low as we can make it? And then having some kind of reasonably gradual available set of steps between those two places is just a constant part of our work.
0: I want to talk about this question of bouncing the needs of a really, really broad audience, especially when you're sort of the only solution for a lot of people who do this for a living.
2: With audio, our life is a little bit easier in terms of what the state of computing is today. So with audio, you can throw a lot of audio at a modern computer and not hit the limit very quickly. So we get a little bit of a reprieve we get some more overhead available some more buffer in the fact that folks who are just starting with audio or don't intend to go very deep in the details of audio can just dump a lot of audio into a modern computer running qlab and they're just gonna work you know they don't have to think about hitting the limits of their computer. They're not used to thinking about that and tends to not have to think about that. So that's one area where just the sheer power of modern computers is really, really nice in in helping us span that range because we don't have to expose the trade-offs you might have to make to just get the computer to just even work correctly, right? So that we really can lean on as a nice fact of audio in the modern world, which isn't to say that no one ever hits the limits of (laughs) what their machine can do with audio, but it's just a lot harder to do. In terms of designing, I mean, this is a deep, hard question. You ask, what does it look like when we're having the conversation about whether to try to bake in something that's more of an advanced feature in an easier way. I mean, obviously, if we can design something that exposes a complicated or difficult idea without also making everything else a little bit harder, then that's an obvious win. There are times when we can put in a feature and it is almost invisible to anyone who doesn't care about it. And that is often, not always, but often that's a good indication that it's a good idea. The trade-off there can also be, though, that adding complexity to a program destabilizes it. So stuff that can seem like an easy win because it's mostly invisible to people who don't care is also adding code to the program. And adding code to the program means you're adding bugs to the program. So you have to weigh, like, how confident are we that we can build this code in a way that is clean and reliable and won't cause problems even if you're not using it or cause problems with our ability to maintain it or understand it or for a new developer to come in and look at it. So there's a lot of possibly invisible trade-offs to things that might feel like they just boil down to, well, just add a checkbox. And sometimes that is definitely the right answer, but it's one that we resist a little more firmly than I think people are expecting us to resist, is just adding a checkbox in any specific individual case might be okay, but it's the thing that could happen dozens and dozens of times and now you've got a screen full of checkboxes and a lot of complicated code behind that and somehow you
1: boiled the water and your frog is dead. So, <laughs> so I, th- I, thought of, I thought of a good example from the perspective of a feature we haven't added. Oh, good. Right. So here's a feature we've wanted to add but have not added. And my estimate is that we are not going to add it soon because it fails this exact scenario that we're talking about right now, right? Which is the Q Sequence Recorder, which is a tool that I have found anecdotally not tons of people use, but people who do use it love it and find it sort of invaluable for their process. The Q Sequence Recorder, briefly, is this part of QLab which allows you to open a window, say, start watching me, QLab, and then play a bunch of cues. And then when you're done, You click stop in the cue sequence recorder, and then it produces a group cue full of start cues that trigger all the cues you triggered by hand. And the timing between those start cues is automatically programmed by Qlab to match the real world timing that you had when you performed your goes. So the example that I like to use is performing a thunderstorm to sound natural. I can just trigger thunderclaps whenever I feel it would be reasonable for the next thunderclap to happen or triggering a Foley-esque series of sound effects that respond to a pre-choreographed onstage set of events. Those are two examples of when I think the cue sequence recorder is really helpful. But in either case, what the cue sequence recorder creates for you is always a group cue full of start cues with pre-weights and sometimes follows. And something that lots of people have requested, one of them, maybe the loudest of them, has been me, is instead of creating a group queue full of start queues, why can't QLab just take all the queues that I triggered and move them into a new group queue? Because I don't want to reach out and start them. Those are the queues that I want in my sequence, the actual queues themselves. And it turns out that that only works for a really narrow set of cases, right? What happens when someone triggers the same queue twice for the queue sequence recorder? Does QLab make two copies of it in the new sequence? If so, is it supposed to to make a copy of the target media file also? Or what exactly is supposed to happen? It gets confusing rapidly. And that's what stopped us from making this feature available because there's no clear, clean answer that's easy to explain about what behavior would ensue if we changed it like that.
2: I was just going to say, this reminds me, there's a character in a ton of French novel. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right who says, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but he says something to the effect of, we're all given permission to do what we want and then pay the price, says God. And that is something I think about a lot in life in general, but also in software is that you can do anything, but you have to pay the price. So what is the price? Sometimes one approach we'll take to trying to understand when to make that call is just waiting. We wait to see if something continues to prove to poke at us. If it feels like something has showed up once or twice, but we're not really sure about it, then let that one sit for a while. And if it just keeps coming up, if people keep talking about it, or if we feel the need for it ourselves when we're using the program, then, There's this accumulation of weight behind certain ideas that eventually pushes it into, okay, this is worth the price, so let's work on this one. And there's only a very limited number of things we can work on at any one time. We have a very small development team relative to other companies. So that helps us stay focused as well, is that we can only do two or three things at once, and we have a huge list of potential things, so we got to do the stuff that feels like it is absolutely the best payoff for the cost of working on it.
0: What are some examples of features that have sort of simmered in the background and then people have just poked and poked and poked? And finally, you've been like, okay, this is a thing we're going to add in.
2: This is a very small one, but it is an example that just came right off the top of my head is in, I think it was version two to version three. There was a feature that John Leonard in particular was very vocal about, and it was locking the integrated fade envelope on the audio waveform giving it the option either lock it to the start and end time of the file or not and that was one of those like it just had a checkbox for it which I resisted for a long time and then finally realized that the request was actually should be done (laughs) that that resisting it was not the right stance and uh, added that checkbox and uh, that was the right move and uh, I think John was very relieved when that finally showed up and hopefully other people were too. Yeah, that was a good one to add. For the folks who saw clearly that it should be like that, it probably felt frustrating that it took so long. Uh, You know, (laughs) we do our best. (laughs) I do my best.
1: I think timeline groups are another example of that. Turning the start all children simultaneously group into a visual timeline editor was the kind of thing that for a lot of folks who are accustomed to using DAW software, its absence seemed weird, right? It seemed like almost like that should have been the default posture of QLab entirely. Now, for me, and I think for many other folks, the absence of that was in fact QLab's merit that QLab is not a single indelible timeline like Final Cut Pro or Logic or notably WatchOut, QLab does not have a single timeline. The fact that QLab is not a single timeline program is an asset to being able to use QLab in a time-flexible environment, right? We all understand this sort of intuitively in straight plays, the order of cues is non-negotiable but the timing between cues is highly negotiable particularly if you're doing a comedy right if you're doing noises off and you've got a hot audience the show could be 20 minutes longer than it was on the night that you had a cold audience and so a single timeline is completely unsuitable for that sort of performance so we resisted the idea of any kind of timeline oriented feature because that's not what cue labs for that's not what cue lab does and i think notably also it's a hard feature like there's a lot of details to make that work yeah I'll brag about you and the rest of the development team now, Chris. Though that is true that it's hard, the thing that is also true is that once we realized that an individual group queue could be its own miniature timeline, disassociated from all the other queues in the show, we went from that conceptual breakthrough to having a functional prototype of the timeline group pretty quick.
2: And I have to give specific credit to my colleague, Christopher, who was the one who he actually he kind of pulled this out as a secret project. He sat down and did a sprint kind of with his head down and then came out of that and said, well, I made a
1: timeline. (laughs) I was like, oh, well, that's awfully nice. I got a privileged inside look at that process because Christopher came with me to the Banff Center to teach a QLab class. And it was conversations with the students in that class. I think that However, it happened that sort of catalyzed his thinking. And we broke after class on one day and went our separate ways. And my wife was there with us and Chris's girlfriend was there with us also. And so the four of us sort of went out and did some fun stuff and social stuff. And then Chris and I, after coming back, we'd agreed to reconvene and sit together and talk shop a little bit in preparation for the next day's class. And he pulled out his laptop and said, so I've been thinking about what so-and-so said, and let me show you this. Let's see if it makes any sense. And it was the closest I'd ever seen to someone sketching in programming. It was really rapid. For me, the really sort of beautiful thing was that he had loaded up on an understanding of what a timeline would be useful for over the many months and maybe even years of that feature request coming in various forms. He was holding all that knowledge, just waiting for the dam to break. And it broke when he figured out that the timeline could be a subset of your queue list instead of the whole queue list, which of course now makes perfect sense, but at the time seemed sort of like a breakthrough.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chris is pretty good at doing that kind of thing where he'll absorb an idea for a pretty long time and then something goes and it's like, boom, <laughs> which is really fun.
1: I worked for a choreographer when I lived in Portland, Oregon, very brilliant, very delightful choreographer named Robin Lane, and she was the founder and artistic director of a acrobatic theater company called Do Jump. And the way that we worked together is she would narrate how she wanted a piece to go, and she would say like, "Okay, we start with lights up." And then Yoji enters, and he's going to be doing this. And then Nami comes in upstage, and she does that. And then here comes Wendy, and then here comes Robin, and on and on and on. And some of the time, she would describe that to me by describing each event in relation to the event prior. And so I would be programming a start first, go next group with post waits and follows and continues. Then other times she would be describing the piece to me in terms of each event in relationship to the top of the dance. And I do not know what caused her to choose to describe each individual piece one way or the other. And in fact, part of the terms of my being hired was Robin saying, "Sam, I am a non-linear communicator, and your principal role as an employee of Do Jump is to translate." what I say or fail to say into something productive for the crew, because I was their stage manager. And she did not disappoint. That is exactly what happened. So I don't ask why it was that she said one or the other, but because QLab could allow me to program either a start first, go next group full of continues, follows, and post waits, or a start all simultaneously group with pre waits only allowed me to just program the cues As essentially a direct translation of what the choreographer said out loud to me in the rehearsal room. And that flexibility is what persuaded that group to use QLab instead of its old method.
2: I think the trick of making a tool that can do that is this tension between... So the trick about it that makes it hard is creating some set of relatively small core concepts that are actually pretty simple and opinionated and then finding that set of small core concepts that can then be recombined as building blocks into this idea of well you can do whatever you want with it but underneath that I think it's really important to have these pieces that are just one idea at play I can get into my head the simple concept of a queue as a building block that hooks up to other things there's some properties about how it behaves and there's not a lot of different ways that it behaves. There's one way that it behaves and it's small. And once I get that in my heart, I can now use that as a building block and start cobbling it together into more complex things. This is something that we see as programmers in programming languages. There's certain languages that are famously you can do anything in almost any conceivable way and you can write the code in five or six or seven or 10 different possible ways to achieve the same thing. And those languages have their fans, but they tend to be ones that also have a lot of people that hate them because they're really hard to become a master of because there's too many ways to do it. And then there are languages where the fundamental pieces, you know, there's one or two ways to write a certain line of code. Like it dictates how you write the line of code. It might even dictate where the white space is but the smaller pieces are built in such a way that now that you have that tool set you can hook them together and now you can start building things and because you can fully understand the simple thing it allows you to make the more complicated thing but if you start with the complicated thing you're in a world of hurt and you're never going to get to an even more complicated thing it's just going to fall apart so i think that that is a key piece of the yeah we want QLab to be able to work in the way that people want. And the trick of it is finding how to do that where the building blocks are themselves not actually that complicated. And that's
1: that's a tricky bit. And the building blocks are not complicated and the building blocks are also kind of non-negotiable. Post-weight is post-weight, follow is follow, go is go. These are not negotiable, these are not flexible. But because they all are such small pieces, you put them together and the big piece can be very different than someone else's big piece that you've built. It's like Lego, right? Although I guess my brother and I are the only people who use Lego as a plural. I think other people say Legos, but the individual Lego brick is in fact famously indelible, non-destructible, non-negotiable. And also to my great delight, every Lego brick is manufactured to three decimal places of precision. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. They are 0.001 inches of tolerance is the acceptable tolerance for a lego piece
2: and they've made some fancy lego bricks you know it's not that they haven't augmented it with some specific special purpose pieces but the core philosophy of what a lego brick is everybody understands that this philosophical question of what's a chair what's a table like you know what a lego brick is it might vary on that theme but you know real well what it means to be a lego brick and how it fits together
1: And then the end results, no matter whether you choose to use fancy Lego bricks or simple Lego bricks, my end result Lego construction and your end result Lego construction needn't be even remotely similar. But all of our constituent parts for our respective Lego constructions are necessarily the same fundamental building blocks that work the same way.
0: The sound community is a community that I would say almost famously hates change in the way that our technology functions, even though the tools we use are constantly changing, especially now that we live in a digital world. How are you navigating that in the necessary iterations of the program?
2: I feel like I I don't remember a lot of pushback on
1: changes generally. I can think of one big one.
2: Oh, what, what was that?
1: One very big one, in fact. We have displeased our customers by adding fancy paste and co-opting the keyboard shortcut Command-Shift-V.
0: That was exactly the instance I was thinking of. I've heard this from a couple people, but there's one person in particular who I work with a lot who absolutely hates that that muscle memory has been destroyed, even though all that's happening is one extra click after that key command.
1: Not even necessarily a click. You can do Command-Shift-V, Enter if you set your default to either be the previous set of checkboxes or just the audio set of checkboxes if you're an audio person. We got a lot of pushback from that on day one and it's sort of had the longest tail of pushback. And speaking only for myself, I have adopted a very sort of calm and serene perspective in which my response to a person who's angry about that keyboard shortcut is to say, it is reasonable for you to be angry. I agree with you that the old way was easier for you. And my concern has to be not only for you, but for the untold thousands of people who have never yet used QLab, and whether this new behavior is going to be a better starting point for those people than the old behavior. I think that their other perspectives are reasonable. I'm not trying to say that I think I've got the only right attitude here, but I also will fiercely defend the idea that my perspective is among the reasonable perspectives. And I do think that, For a new learner, the current behavior is not fundamentally slow to learn or difficult to remember.
2: Sam, is this one of those things that can also be rebuilt using some kind of scripting
1: tool? Yeah, it can. Well, it would have to be two steps, right? So you'd go to System Preferences, Keyboard, and then remap the fancy paste keyboard shortcut to be something other than Command-Shift-V. And then you could create a network queue that uses an OSC message to simulate the old command shift V behavior and then use that as a hotkey on the network queue. So it's a couple of steps, but you could get back to the old way without too, too much difficulty. Yeah. And it's true. This is definitely a trade off
2: that we made where we couldn't have it both ways. And we made a choice that it is fair to say that it made some folks lives a little bit harder, a little bit more annoying. And yeah, we have to take responsibility for that, but we did it for a reason that we stand behind
0: you know, speaking personally, I think it's a great change. I use Fancy Paste like nobody's business.
2: I also love that you're comfortably using the name Fancy Paste. We have a kind of ongoing joke in the company that we're just gradually trying to name more and more things fancy (laughs) within the program because, you know, the sort of more formal name for that feature is Q Properties. But No one calls it that. It's just fancy paste. So we've been fancifying all sorts of stuff. And every time we have to name something, there's inevitably someone who proposes some version of fancy as part of the name. And it usually feels like it would be a good choice. Like it's not a bad idea because it captures something
1: true about what is fun and cool about that. It's not just paste. It's a fancy paste. For whatever reason, for me, calling something fancy blank In my head, it's a nod to the nomenclature of hardware stores of the late 1800s in which they had like, you know, tools over here, here's bucket of nails, and then here are the category fancy goods. And fancy goods defined as anything that you don't actually literally need to survive. Bring back more classic nomenclature, I say. But nomenclature only. I don't think we need anything else from the 1880s to be brought back. No, no, no. no. (laughs) But the language was awfully fun. The language and hat wearing. Yes, Those are the things I'd I'd like. It doesn't feel exactly germane to sound design, but also not exactly irrelevant.
0: So speaking of things that aren't quite germane to sound design, let's talk about QLab 4 and your most recent addition, Lighting. I'm interested in how that came about. QLab you know, started as an audio software. Video's clearly been part of its DNA for a while. And that sort of makes sense that those two media fields would exist together in a software. And I don't think I'd be the only one to say that when the big announcement of QLab 4 came out and the big flag-waving feature was that lighting control was added, that it was a little bit of a shock. So I'm interested in what the path to bringing that into the QLab fold was. Yeah, well, you know,
2: so that's a great question. How did we get here that QLab did lighting? Yep, that's me. I do lighting. You might be wondering how I got here. Well, so the simple answer, the simple answer, which we tried to humorously capture in our announcement was that we got asked about it a lot. There were a lot of folks who were either wanting to use it for lighting or already using it for lighting by hooking it up to another smaller lighting desk or other piece of software for the folks who I can totally understand might have been surprised by that. Naturally, those weren't the folks who were asking us to add lighting. (laughs) Um, They had a different set of goals and interests. But over time, the number of folks and the diversity of folks who've used QLab keeps growing. And so what people wanted QLab to do has also kept growing. So the simplest answer is that some set of people, not everyone, but some set wanted it. And we don't add everything that everybody says they want, but it did feel like it was an appropriate piece of the QLab toolbox, you know, I think QLab has, it's one product, but it's a product with distinct markets and distinct sets of people who use it and they tend to always be in the same room, but they're different audiences. And I certainly started building tools for an audio audience. I mean, I can remember really vividly, I was in my friend's apartment in Carbo, North Carolina, and added a really simple like had the realization that like, oh, this cue structure, this building block of a queue, doesn't really care what it does. It just does something. And what if I just threw in a little video playback thing in a window and hey that's pretty neat you know it was like the first version of video playback in qlab was incredibly rudimentary it was not suitable for most cases where you would need video playback in most performance situations but for the places where it was appropriate it was a lifesaver it was a really nice way to throw in a video file into your show that you couldn't do a lot with it but you could play it you could locate it somewhere on the screen And it helped a lot of folks. And that was, as with essentially almost every QLab feature, that was its starting point. It was something that was just cool enough to be really helpful to some not huge number of people. But for those people, it was a really big deal. And I really view the lighting features with that same attitude, that we very intentionally did not try to make something that was going to suddenly and instantly be a competition to an ETC lighting board. That's a company that I respect, admire, and love, and I think they do a great job. And we weren't trying to become a replacement for people who use complex ETC boards, except in those circumstances, maybe, where that actually wouldn't be the right tool, or where compact portability, or for folks who have never encountered an ETC light board and do their one person shows and just know they want to control lights and they, prior to the COVID area, were doing touring from small venue to small venue. Like there are these folks who don't work within the context of say regional theater or Broadway or what you might immediately come to mind as the archetype of professional theater who still have lights they want to control and are familiar with QLab and would like for one of the things that a Q can do to fade lights up and down in a way that's reliable reliable and repeatable and can give them some artistry. And this goes back to me being in the coat closet at Edinburgh, elbowing the light switch behind me on the wall. Like I didn't need a light board in there, but it would have been nice to have a program that I could program when the lights went on and off. So starting with something that is intentionally simple in some ways, but laying a foundation for where it can grow. We've had lots of conversations about where it can grow and where we want to get to, that's a very QLab y approach is to start with one thing that is useful and then iterate, 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 keep going, keep building. And that's what we're trying to continue to do with lighting.
1: I think, sort of, a corollary to that is that it's very easy for any one QLab user to understand the context in which they use QLab and the context in which the people that they self identify as peers. Use QLab, right? So it's easy, Josh, for you and me to think about how QLab is used on Broadway and in professional off Broadway theater. But it's a little bit more of a stretch for us to start to imagine all right, well, where else is QLab used? Educational theater, sure, easy. And regional theater, easy, sure. Small, semi pro, or high end amateur theater, sure. But QLab is also used, for example, to do audio playback. For major sporting events qlab is used extensively in australia for example for professional soccer stadium playback like i never expected that it's weird but it's true qlab is used by radio folks QLab is used in comedy clubs, and in these other contexts, the need for relatively straightforward DMX playback starts to make a lot more sense. For a video person, using a Barco projector, which often has native DMX input to control a couple of basic features, the idea that QLab would have a lighting cue that could send DMX controls to the projector feels like a really natural fit for a video person. In a comedy club, they really just need lights up, lights down, and a few basic looks much of the time. And they often have a booth so small that even the smallest theater booth seems spacious by comparison. I mean, it really is often just a space where one person sits with the laptop on their lap. And for those folks, basic lighting control is like not only easy, but invaluable because where are they going to put a lighting console? Even a small lighting console is too big. So I think that that's part of it. And then I hope you don't mind me saying this, Chris, but uh, you can tell me if you do (laughs) and I'll stop talking about it. For folks who need lighting controls for whom an ion is overkill, those folks have some money to pay someone else for something like Q-Lab's lighting tools and Ultimately, it can be a source of income for us that ends up financing the development of QLab, which becomes a rising tide that lifts all boats, audio, video, show control, lighting, etc. And so the number of theaters in the world is not going up at an impressive rate. So making sure that we continue to have customers who have different needs for QLab to like have a diverse audience who are going to buy QLab from us and therefore make it possible for us to keep developing QLab is important. And I think the development of lighting ties in there. Not that that's the only reason, right? Otherwise, it would be reasonable to say, let's see if we can do a word processing component in QLab. Like, that's nonsense. But it is adjacent. It is relevant. It is pertinent for some customers. And so that's enough to make it worthwhile to investigate.
0: So one thing I'm interested in is that you as a company have a perspective of this industry that I don't think any one individual can have. So how do you think about who uses QLab? Oh, this is such a good
2: question. How do we think about who uses QLab? Who do we have in mind when we're building it? Do we have specific people in mind? Do we have a kind of averaged out idea? That's such a good question. I will say you mentioned that we maybe have a perspective on the broader theater world from where we sit than some individuals within it. I think that's necessarily true in certain ways. And I can tell you as one example that the whole theater world is hurting right now. I can report back that not many folks are doing theatre at the moment. Not that anyone really was wondering about that, but our customers are in over 100 countries around the world. Most of our sales are not in the U.S. in fact, and I can say that the whole world is really struggling with this pandemic when it comes to theatrical performance. But to the question of who do we have in mind when we are designing and building the program, that's a really great question. There are companies that try to formalize that. their are practices within software development about writing down user stories or trying to capture the story of different kinds of users to keep them in your mind when you're designing software. We don't have anything so formal as that. We do, I think informally, spend a lot of time talking to customers. We're constantly emailing with people both on our Google group mailing list and within our support inbox. So for the set of folks who talk to us or reach out or email us, we spend a huge amount of time becoming familiar with who they are and what they do that way. There's another perspective on this, which is that as the company has grown, folks that I've hired to be part of it also come from the context in which it is used. Not all of the context, but in many of its core sort of classic contexts of theatrical sound design or video design, a lot of our support team or most of our support team are people who come from that world or continue to work in that world and then also work with us when we're lucky enough to have them. Folks like Cricket Myers and Sam here and Charles Coves and like folks who are just stellar designers and in that world on a daily basis. So we come from that world as part of our understanding of who we're thinking about and talking to. but. That still certainly leaves questions about who are the people who are not talking to us? Who are the people who are not writing in? Who are the people who are using it and we never know they're using it or we just barely know they're using it? That can be a hard question and it can really lead to internal conversations about have we made it as accessible as it ought to be for people who are are novice folks who do not have a sophisticated or want a sophisticated understanding of the program. Like, should there be a version of it that is just a lot easier to use if you just sit down and want to make a slideshow? I think we also know that there are people out there who use it that we don't know as well. And sometimes I wouldn't say we worry about it, but it is something that we think about and are at least somewhat aware of because it's like writing, right? I mean you write for an audience. Like it's it's hard to write well if there's not someone you're writing to. And it's the same with writing software. You write it for a specific audience. All that said, I will also say that I believe that there's a motivating design and spirit to the program. We'll talk about a feature as being very Q labby or something. And that is also a guiding principle. Like there's something about the program that exists in some philosophical realm I would argue independently of the people who use it in some strange way about how it is constructed and what its design philosophy is. And that can also be a guiding light. Like, is this a QLabby thing? Is this in the spirit of how this program works? So it's this weird mix of, yeah, we want to know specific people we're building for. We want to know what their context is. I mean, it's really important we know what problems people are trying to solve. Otherwise, there's no point in any of this. And to understand those problems really deeply. And somehow mixing that also with this separate sense of what kind of spiritually is this program? And what does it mean to build it in one way that is appropriate for what QLab is versus another way that wouldn't feel qlab And that's a fuzzy thing to try to talk about. But I mean, Sam, I don't know if you agree, but I feel like those two things are at play in how we're trying to understand how we design
1: anything. The thing you said that really landed for me just now, Chris, is it's hard to write well if you don't know who you're writing to. I think that's a really eloquent way to describe it.
2: And I mean it in a really specific sense. We've recently been curious about broader descriptions of who is buying QLab, and we're trying to figure that out a little bit better. We've never been very good at having numbers readily available. Like this percentage of people uses it for theater. This percentage of people is using it in churches. This percentage of people is using it at sporting events. And those are things we want to know and care about and are trying to get better about but the program frankly started with me just being in the rehearsal room constantly and absorbing the problem there and then When it became something that was actually a program that I was working on, the specific one-to-one human conversations that were happening between specific people that were using it was the driving force of how I and then we were thinking about what the heck we were building for people. And having those human relationships on an individual level and having as many of them as possible over a long period of time, I don't see how to get around that and make good software. I don't think it's possible.
1: I realize there's something else that I want to add, which is a little bit of inside baseball in that we don't do this formally, but what ends up happening informally is we sort of have different folks inside the company adopt. position of championing a particular subset of users. So Charles Coase will speak from the perspective of Broadway QLab users and say, this is what QLab users need. And when he says QLab users, he's saying QLab users on Broadway. And Lola will adopt the perspective of educational QLab users and say, QLab users need this other thing. And what she's saying at that time is, QLab users in an educational context, particularly in higher ed. And I may adopt the perspective of QLab users in off-Broadway theaters or small professional theaters or whatever. And we debate and we kind of tussle a little bit. And I think actually Lola and I particularly just flat out argue and we don't have a hard time arguing with each other. We enjoy arguing with each other and it's no hard feelings at all times, but that sort of push and pull, there's room for that push and pull inside the process of deciding what comes next. That we just make sure to leave room for as much as possible and try to also make part of our beta process, right? We do private beta tests for major landmark releases, 4.0, 3.0, et cetera. And our beta team, we try to keep small because the smaller it is, the more easy it is to have a conversation. But we try to aim for beta users who use KeyLab in a wide variety of contexts so that we can see how a particular adjustment or a particular feature resonates from that perspective.
2: And I will say for the audience that might be listening to this recording in particular, and for the subset of that audience who might have fallen into the category that you described before of being a little disappointed when we had spent some time on lighting, just know that there are a number of folks within the company who I would describe as advocates for the sound community and are not shy about saying whether or not they feel any particular effort spent on other things will be viewed with disappointment in that community. So some reassurance that there are voices that are saying those things within the company too.
0: What does an argument look like between USAM championing the users in off-Broadway and small professional theater world versus Lola championing an educational theater perspective? What kind of features feel at odds between those two user bases.
1: Thinking about the question of different sorts of QLab users and what could be good for one sort of QLab user but bad for another, I think that some of the easiest examples I can think of are sort of visual design choices, UI design choices, rather than sort of underlying mechanics. And the best example I can point to is in video, actually. There exists a real tension within the company, a healthy tension between the folks who say, for a beginner or for someone who has modest complexity needs of QLabs video, QLab is too complicated to get up and running when it comes to video. And then the opposite side of that argument is, QLab has a sophisticated video output system, and we need to allow the user to adjust all the things that can be adjusted. We need to give the user access under the hood. So Lola and I particularly actually often argue, again, we pleasantly argue, enjoyably argue, we collegially argue over whether or not the basic UI design of video in QLab should get simpler or not. Her general position is it should be much simpler for folks who have simpler needs. And while I don't disagree with that at all, my perspective is always asking, when will simplifying, as you say, end up hampering the people for whom complexity is valuable?
2: I don't know if I have been witness to all of those discussions, but I will say that this specific discussion in particular, and Lola also has a background in like DIY theater. She's founded a theater company and has a lot of interest from that end of the spectrum as well. And I think it's fair to say that the work we're doing now for future versions of QLab is certainly impacted by that argument and trying to find ways to reduce the friction when going from zero to doing simple video. And tell me if you disagree, Sam, but I think there's been consensus within the company that things we can improve there without sacrificing the power and flexibility of the program, but there are still ways that we can improve what that experience is like for people who just currently feel overwhelmed by the idea of getting video to work in QLab. And I think that's been a really healthy conversation for us.
1: I am not shy to say that I believe that it is going to be markedly easier to do easy video in QLab 5 than in QLab 4 without being harder to do hard video. And I think that that's the result of these extended conversations and the constant presence of Lola's standard bearing, make easy video easier. Exactly as you say, Chris, I think the discussion about it, the constant discussion about it, and sort of the establishing environment in which a disagreement is not only acceptable, but in fact encouraged, is what's going to allow that to happen.
2: I hope, Lola, if you're listening to this, I hope that we have accurately captured your perspective on this. I hate to speak for someone who isn't here. I really want to put an asterisk to all of that, that it's not really super fair for us to try to represent her view without her being here. So
1: I just want to note that. Indeed, I can only represent my view of her view, which is as proceeds.
0: I'd love to talk about support. It really feels like the support side of figure 53 is so integral to the way that you function as a company and that you work on making the software as good as it can be. I'd love if you could talk you know, a little bit about the different ways in which you're supporting users on a day-to-day basis, but also you know, what some of your philosophy is behind dealing with customers through the various avenues of support that you have.
2: We certainly have a lot of thoughts and feelings about support. Yeah. I mean, that's a just completely core part of where the company came from and what we care about and what we spend time and money on and emotional energy.
1: I think that at least the perspective that I bring to the table is governed by one of the things that a professor of mine said to me in college that is one of those like single sentences that stuck with me and will always stick with me. His name was John Lucas, and he was my professor of lighting design, and he was truly a remarkable and wonderful person. And he said on one early day in our lighting design class, you have to remember, gang, he always called a group of people gang, like he was in a 50s sitcom. You have to remember, gang, essentially zero companies make things for theater. So everything we're going to talk about is something that was made for something else and that we're using wrong on purpose. Yes. And that burned brightly in my head throughout all of college. And it's true, right? Historically speaking, the principal scenic design elements are pine, two by four, and one by four, and CDX plywood, right? So we use plywood intended for rough sheathing of buildings and two by four intended for building stud walls. And the reason we use them is that at the time that we started establishing these construction techniques, those were the cheapest materials available. But they weren't invented for theater. There's no reason that that's what was needed. Likewise, the earliest. Professional lighting in theater was adapted from residential lighting, gaslight, very early on, and even before that, candled chandeliers. But the history of our industry is mostly things made for other purposes that theater folks steal, co-opt, misuse deliberately and carefully. And so from that perspective, as a deliberate misuser of technology, I always found it extremely frustrating that I could never speak to the manufacturer and say, listen, I'm doing this. Help me out with any expectation that the manufacturer would have ever heard of the thing that I'm doing. So when it became time for me to be able to support QLab users in their use of QLab. I was delighted to be able to turn that assumption around and say, not only is this tool, QLab, especially made for you, I'm here to help you, especially from the perspective of understanding what it is you're going to be doing. And what that means is I'm going to make sure that not only that I can answer your question in a literal sense, right? How do I do blank? Well, here's how you do blank. Click here, drag there, type this, whatever. But if I help you understand how to do that, not just know how to do that, that sort of embodies the idea of teaching someone to fish instead of giving them a fish. And since computers are hard and software is hard to use, and as we were talking about earlier in this conversation, there was a long period of time in which just basic technical mastery of the computer was itself a major skill. I feel like we've come from this perspective of, all right, well, we got to get you up that basic mastery hill first, and then we can make sure that you can actually get done what you want. And educating you and not just answering your question is the way to make sure that you succeed and therefore will want to keep using QLab. So there's a selfish component to it as well, but it's not purely selfish because honestly, the point of making QLab was so that folks could go do good design. And the better we answer their questions, the more likely it is that they will be able to use QLab to go do good design. So that's what we want. That's what it's for. There's another
2: component that I think exists within all of the support team now. Just as a side note, it's pretty wild. I mean, I spent years and years and years being, first of all, the only person at the company. And then when I wasn't the only person at the company, still the primary or only support person for a while, our teammate Lucky Dave was our first dedicated support person. And I found him by looking at the group and looking to see who was answering everyone's questions the most already. And it was by far was Lucky Dave. And so I was like, well, this fellow, maybe we should pay him to do that because he's just constantly doing it anyways. And so it's wild now to you know, I spent years being the person who did everything and that answered all the emails. And it's wild now to have this team of people who does it so much better and knows so much more than I do. And it is such a relief to be able to know that that inbox is staffed by professionals who have such an incredible depth to their experience and understanding and technical detail. And I still get a number of people who contact me directly because they think they'll get better support if they text me or email me directly. And I have to be like, look, honestly, you really should email the support team. I specifically hired people who are better at this than me, and they're really, really good. So please, 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 everyone is going to do better, and you're going to get an answer faster if you contact them, and they care so much. But I think one thing that I remember from my experience, being the only person who was answering emails for a while, that I think, Sam, you tell me if it still feels like this, but I talked at the beginning about sending that beta to the sound designer mailing list and getting emails back and feeling thrilled that real professionals actually cared and cared enough to like send me suggestions or tell me what should change. And I really still feel like at some fundamental level, every email to us is a gift. Like there's a gift in there. There There's someone who is taking the time to reach out. And maybe just because they have a question, sometimes they might be upset about something or frustrated or confused, but they care. They care about what we're doing. They want to use the thing we're making. And that's fundamentally a gift and an opportunity. And so I truthfully and genuinely, I try to always just start every reply when the first time someone writes in with like, thank you for your email. And I really mean that. I'm really grateful. And that position of feeling like it is a gift for people to reach out, I think underscores the attitude that everybody at some level has. Now, on a busy day, we may write hundreds of emails, and some of them are very simple questions, and some of them are just like, oh, can you change my email address? And like, there's varying degrees to which the spirit is imbued in every email exchange. It's not like we're having some like spiritual experience with every single customer. And we are very lucky that we have really amazing customers, but every once in a while, and I can count on one hand the number of times it has happened. There's somebody who is either abusive or not involved in the exchange in good faith. And you do have to like take a position where, you know, I want to help and we need to be on the same team and work together to do this. And if that's not something you want to do, then we can't help, but that's incredibly rare. And so most of the time it's this feeling of gratitude and like opportunity to engage with people that I think I see everybody doing when they're doing a much better job support than i can do to me that's a real driver for it
0: so the next thing i want to talk about is you built a theater
2: i built a theater and finished it right as the world entered the global pandemic the day that i really decided i was going to try to do this i wrote it down so that i know it was a little over 10 years ago this january so it took me 10 years and i did it and we put up one show And then the world shut down. Um, So, wow. It's weird conceptually, right? It's a weird project. It's driven by my interest in it primarily and it exists within a few slices of interest. It exists as a space for art making. It exists as a space for research and development. It happens to be across the alley, almost, truly almost by coincidence. It's across the alley from our Baltimore office, which none of us have set foot in for three months. So you can walk out the back door of our Baltimore office, and if you walk exactly straight, you will directly walk into the stage door of this theater. It's about 8,000 square feet, so it's a nice black box size, I love a black box theater. I love that format. I love 70 to 80 person houses. Like that's really the sweet spot for me in terms of just what I personally enjoy. So it is a space which I envision us eventually teaching QLab classes here, having training here. We can use it for research and development for stuff for QLab where it's just hard to do certain things and test them and see if they actually work or hear if they actually work if you're not in an actual theater. And then it's also, hopefully eventually going to be a performance space. It's one of those projects that it depends on who's asking what the pitch is, right? <laughs> like, it's interesting to different people for different reasons. And it's a project that is an option to do because we're a small privately owned company and I can make weird choices like that.
1: It sounds a little bit, Chris, like QLab, right? You're saying it's differently appealing depending on who's asking?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not the kind of thing, just like QLab, it's not the kind of thing a larger company probably would have done, at least not in this way, because larger companies are subject to other pressures, but I made a damn theater (laughs) and meant someday I might get to use it again. I'm real glad we had one show in it. It would have felt just crushing to spend 10 years to build it and then immediately shut it down without ever having any art in it. So I'm super grateful that we got to do something in it. And now it slumbers for who knows how long, but hopefully we'll come back. Oh my God, what incredible timing.
1: I find that hopefully very, very on brand for you, Chris, but allow me to lend you some of my optimism. I find that hopefully to be unnecessary. I find the current gnashing of teeth and rending of garments over the fate of theater as we know it to be overblown and false and ignorant of the history of theater. I'm not saying that you are overblown, false, and ignorant of the history of theater. I'm saying that the folks who are in your ear from all directions of our planet—not in your ear, but in everybody's ear—saying we may never see theater again, the world may never be the same. That is true, but it is equally true every minute of every day of every year that the world is never the same. In fact, that is what history is that's what time means (laughs) (laughs) I am sympathetic to that and I you know theater has withstood all sorts of plagues and wars
2: and things and also there's a lot of people going through an incredible crisis right now and it's scary and most folks don't have a job right now in our industry and a lot of folks reasonably might look ahead at the coming months or however long it might take for indoor theater to be safe and make a pretty good guess that this may be the end of the road for their career that's heartbreaking right so it's easy to feel scared right now and uncertainty is a scary thing and i think that we and by we i hesitate to define who that is but someone will get through this there will be theater all that stuff is true and also what a stressful anxious scary horrible true crisis for so many people for so many reasons that's true outside of our field too but it is certainly the case that it feels like this is among the industries that's going to get the hardest hit for the longest time. And that's hard. I mean, just speaking to us as a company, probably the best business decision I've ever made was that I consistently have had this like pessimistic conservative approach where I was like, well, what if, what if all theater in the entire world were to stop overnight? <laughs> we could possibly make that happen. That's ridiculous. Well, oh. Oh. Now we know. So we have a cushion. You know, we have cash in the bank to last an incredibly long time compared to almost any other small company. So we're not in an immediate crisis and we're still working and we're still, you know, we're just going for it. But we are a small company that the majority of our customer base is out of work and not working. And that certainly affects us. And so we feel it too. We're lucky to keep getting paid for a while because I just put a lot away for a rainy day fund. But yeah,
1: ooh. (laughs) wild times. And I certainly don't mean to minimize the significance and the importance and the danger for individuals. That is not my intention. And I don't think that you think it is, and I don't think that you're saying that it is. But the notion of public commentary on current events is enculturated these days to sort of ask these great, broad, existential questions without, it seems to me, also sharing a vested interest in like being helpful while commenting about it. You know, Moore's laws that transistor density doubles every 18 months, Murphy's laws, whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And this person's law, and I've forgotten who this person is, this person's law says any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered no. <laughs> is theater doomed? No. Are we destroying the planet? No. We are likely making the planet inhospitable for human beings and many other animals, we're not gonna destroy the planet. The planet is fine. The planet will outlive all of us what we are doing is making our own lives and the lives of other humans incredibly difficult for no reason. And that's the conversation we should be having. So is theater doomed? No. And to talk about that for me is like a waste of the important mental energy and a waste of anguish. Instead of saying, is theater doomed? We should say, my goodness, we have a real big problem on our hands, as you just beautifully outlined, Chris, what are the things we can do to handle this real big problem right now? Don't worry about is theater doomed. That's a nonsense question with no meaningful answer at all. What can we do right now to help ourselves and each other? That's a meaningful question. And so I feel as though I'm arguing against something that you didn't say. And so I don't want it to seem like I'm arguing with you.
2: Oh, no, 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 it's fine. (laughs) It's fine.
1: I don't feel argued against. But yes, the answer, um, Josh, is that we built a theater. Yeah, we built a theater. I'm sitting in it right now.
2: Largest podcast booth in history.
1: Maybe. I don't know.
2: It doesn't sound full of reverb,
0: too, so that's a plus.
1: I'm surrounded by curtains. Soft goods. Yeah. Soft goods. Yeah.
0: You built a smart theater.
1: We actually ended up building a carefully, deliberately dumb theater with a lot of empty space to put smarts in. Actually true.
2: Yeah. It's a very lab approach to building a theater, actually. It's starting simple and run a bunch of bog-standard Cat5 cable everywhere. Okay, put a grid and put plenty of electricity. Okay, now wait to see what you actually need next. While it is true that this is intended as a room in which we can develop potentially very sophisticated software for theater, I'm sure you'll listen to this, Dad, and I don't want to pick on you. But like my dad just assumed that it was going to be like super high end, like techie out of the gate. And in fact, that's sort of the anti-design of it in some ways. It's meant to be a space in which we start with the basics, what we need, and then learn from that. And maybe we make certain pieces of it more sophisticated. But what can we do in a space that is a big, beautiful, empty room with a lot of height to the grid and lots of electricity and get some real good speakers and some real good lights. But otherwise, you know, it's not super fancy in a lot of ways. And I kind of love that. Yeah, me too. It was so wonderful to have Sam and Charles and others of our team who are theatrical experts be able to be part of the conversations of designing the space because I don't know if you've ever built a building. That is hard. I mean, in architectural terms, this is a simple building. It's a big box. And yet, I mean, with the exception of a piece of software, it is the single most complicated jigsaw puzzle I've ever done in my life. And the trick is that with software, you can do bits of it at a time or you can tear it out and rebuild it. With a building, you kind of just get one shot. So it was really, really nice to have folks like Sam be part of the conversations where, you know, the architect who was a fantastic architect, but architects don't spend time in theaters. Even if they specialize in theaters, they don't spend time making theater, right? So if they could send us a drawing and said, well, the track for the curtain is here and Sam would go, oh, no, 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 no. No, there will be no tracks for curtains because they made a guess about what a theater means and what it has. And it wasn't an unreasonable guess, but it was really nice to be able to say, no, no, step back. We're making less choices than you think about where curtains will hang. So thank you, Sam, because <laughs> <laughs> I have a little bit of the knowledge that would have helped with that. But really, mostly, I just sat back and let Sam say,
1: okay, so <laughs> what we actually want here. <laughs> I mean, it's an incredibly cathartic experience because I wasn't really speaking to these architects when I spoke to them. I was speaking to the architect of every theater I've ever been in and been frustrated by.
2: And did we get every last little detail right? Of course not. You know, it's a building. You do your damn best and then a million people show up and build the thing. And then you realize, oh, okay, I made a different choice for that part. But we built less building. So we actually like down the line, if we do want to change it, it's actually an option. Or if we're like, okay, yeah, we do want to go ahead and invest in a wall here for light lock purposes or, you know, those kind of things. You know, we put enough concrete in the floor that if we do build this second, level portion of it. We have the concrete pad where the elevator can go. So it's accessible, you know, but we just right now just have the concrete there. We built just enough theater, <laughs> just enough theater.
0: So besides just, you know, being a place to teach, what's sort of your dream for this space and how it functions?
2: Sam told the story earlier of one of our development team, Christopher, going with him to be one of the teachers in one of the classes and how out of that class unlocked the timeline view for group queues. Anytime we can shorten the feedback loop between the context in which KeyLab is used and the fingers that are writing the code and tighten that feedback loop and make it more direct and visceral, it inevitably has a huge effect on our work you know, anytime I get the chance to step away from my desk and work on a show personally, there's always something that I immediately am like, oh gosh, how could anyone stand the fact that this works this way? I can I change that? Because there's just nothing like actually trying to use the darn thing or seeing people trying to use it to make it immediately clear what's working, what's not working, what could be better. So part of it is to have the space in which not only can we like test stuff and see if it works, but also to have art happening and to be in the room, either to be participating in it, because many of us are theater artists or to at least be watching and learning and experiencing what's happening in the room. So from the perspective of the software company making a product, that to me has a huge amount of value. Understanding the problems you're solving really well is kind of the fundamental key to making a good piece of software. And also, (laughs) as this weirdo little small company that nevertheless has had sort of a big impact on the field, I think it's fair to say, I hope we love theater. And like a lot of us, this is where our heart is a lot of the time. And I wanna have residencies here. Like if we ever, if we ever once, not if, but once things have settled down and it is safe to gather again. And the work of making art and sharing experiences with people is hopping again. We'll have residencies here, both specifically for Baltimore artists, and then also inviting people from either around the country or around the world to come do a project here and be able to walk into a space where there may be resources that they're not used to having, or it's just a space where there's a lot of time and room and space to work on a project because that's one of the reasons that life is worthwhile, you know? I mean, do we need a better reason? So it'll be residencies and projects and actual art happening just for the sake of that being something that I care about and of course last but not least teaching it's something that we have been doing more and more of currently online for obvious reasons but sending teachers out into the world can be really great it also relies on what's the circumstances of the room that you go to whether or not it is a really positive experience or a medium positive experience and so being able to have a room that we can set up to be the ideal classroom and invite people to Baltimore and say, once in the spring and once in the fall or something like that, we're going to have these classes. And we're right here on the middle of the East Coast. So it's at least for East coasters, it's a pretty easy trip. We're near BWI airport. So for other folks, it's not too bad. Come to Baltimore and take, you know, maybe it'll be a few days. Maybe we'll construct it as a week. We were just starting to figure all that out when the world shut down, but it'll be just such a great place for people to walk in and be able to really learn how to use this particular tool and sort of gain those superpowers because if you don't know if a feature exists or how to use it then it doesn't exist for you but once you know it you've got a superpower and you can go back to where you came from and now you've leveled up and i'm really excited about that part too
0: so i think we're starting to wrap up what are you both listening to right now
2: i have been listening to there is a local dj her dj name is chill natured and There is a club scene in Baltimore, one in particular that I adore at a venue that's a few blocks south of where I'm sitting now. It's a queer dance party that's just like the most joyful, wonderful, like positive, amazing space that is, of course, on hiatus for the foreseeable future. But the primary DJ for that has been doing uh, mixes once a week, and I subscribe to her on Patreon, and so I've been listening to her mixes. That's the most recent thing I listen to.
1: I have been oscillating. I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'm actually still sort of working through the backlog of podcast commentary on WWDC, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, which happened last week, two weeks ago. Oh gosh, I can't even remember when. So I'm still going through backlog of commentary on that and seeing what people think about that. Needless to say, WWDC generally raises some eyebrows in the Figure 53 team and this year. It's a little bit bigger news that they dropped, and so we've got a lot to chew on. You know, there are people who go to a restaurant, their favorite restaurant, and always order the same thing because it's comforting and it's what they like and it's what they're used to. And, you know, I went from being a person who was like that to a person who rejected that and always tried to eat different food to my current state, which is embracing the former as being like, it's good to love what you know, and it's good to feel comforted and familiar. And it's also good to be adventurous and branch out. And one of the wonderful things about being married, period, but also one of the wonderful things about being married to a musical theater expert is that it's easy for me to not have to work hard to get a variety of theatrical and musical material into my ears, because that's what Alana does and lives and breathes. But I then, on the other side, that sort of frees me up to sort of order my favorite dish all the time. So, my secret weapon album for getting work done is the Penguin Cafe Orchestra's first album. I don't really know much about the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, but they make instrumental music that I find just immediately puts me into a focused mindset. And it's something I can listen to sort of endlessly while I get things done that I need to get done. And it simultaneously, like, keeps my brain engaged without distracting me from what else. I'm trying to do. And it's never dull. It's familiar without being boring. That's what I'm listening to when I'm in that knuckling down, get stuff done mood.
0: So where can people find Figure 53?
2: Well, you can find the company at figure53.com. You can find our main product QLab at QLab.app. Yes, that is QLab.app. Our iOS audio product at GoButton.app. And we're on Twitter at figure53 and on Instagram at figure53. And last but not least, and most importantly, you can find us at the email address support at figure53.com. Basically, any question you might have for us for any reason, sales, technical questions, just saying hello, no question too big or too small, email support at figure53.com. There's a whole podcast about how we handle email and what tools we've made to do that. So you are guaranteed your email will go straight to multiple caring people who will figure out how best to answer it.
0: Great. Is there anything else you guys want to share?
2: I just want to give everybody a hug right now. (laughs) It's a lonely, hard time. I mean, some folks are good at keeping their spirits up, and some folks are having a really hard time, and I just wish I could give everybody a hug.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, Chris, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you.
0: It's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much. This podcast is a production of the TSDCA. This episode was produced, edited, mixed, and scored by me, Josh Samuels, with additional support from Kyle Jensen and Brandon Reed. Additional equipment was provided by Shore. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in finding out more about the TSDCA, our home on the web it's t-s-d-c-a-dot-o-r-g.